to reflect, and uh, I won't tell the story today, but I will refer to it. Whenever I think about Christmas memories, I think about the Christmas that we almost died um, from carbon monoxide poisoning. Uh, Eleven of us were in a cabin together, and uh, we almost didn't make it. And they called in helicopter. Nobody ended up riding in it, but some went in the ambulance, and it was a big mess. But we all lived, and that's a good Christmas memory. You know, it turned out okay. Uh, maybe you have a Christmas memory like that. Or maybe some other memory where, where you, um, you went through something, and it's like you got a new lease on life. Like, wow, that could, have been, that could have been it. But no, we all were okay, and we lived several more Christmases to tell. Um, sometimes we don't even know when we're at that point. We don't know when a car, you know, just missed us or... You know, something we just avoided, and it could have been the end, and we have a new lease on life. I think of my, my grandfather. Um, my grandparents were coming up on their 50th anniversary, and we weren't sure that Grandpa was going to make it. And so we celebrated at, like, 49 and a half years uh, their, their uh, anniversary. Well, um, fast forward 15 years, and he still, <laughs> you know, he outlived Grandma, and etc. He's, he's in heaven now, but it's like those, that extra time. We didn't, he didn't know that he had. If any of you were born before 1980, then uh, you survived life before seatbelts and bike helmet laws, and uh, I don't know how he did it, but uh, God has granted you a new lease on life. Uh, the truth is we, we all are living on borrowed time. We just never, we just never know, and it's a, it's a miracle that we have made it this far. And that's really our key, key truth this morning as we look at this passage. Uh, this is true individually, because we just never know. I think it's true nationally, as you look around, like, how, how much worse could it get? We look at globally the things that are happening, um, things uh, that you would say are of a prophetic nature, wars, rumors of wars, natural disasters. You're like, how, how long could this go on? Living on borrowed time. The truth is there's nothing preventing Christ from, from coming back and taking his church and, and setting in motion the end of all things, except that he's waiting for more who would be saved. Um, Peter tells us this, the Lord's not slow in fulfilling his promises. That's to the answer to the question of, why haven't you done something about this? But, as some count slowness, but instead he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Uh, this is the only reason that, um, that things just keep going on, is because God is patient with us. So, if we're all living on this borrowed time, our key question is, uh, how do we make the most of it? What do we do now? What do we do day to day? How do we live? And, and I think um, when we have this feeling like, oh, how much worse can it get? And things are winding down. There's two basic responses. One is apathy. You know, what's the use? The world's tanking and I'll just kind of check out. Or on the other end, it's intensity. Oh, I got I to gotta make the most of this. I got to seize the day. You know, waste the time versus redeem the time. Careless versus careful. Give up versus just get serious. So these two perspectives when we're living on borrowed time. And if there was ever a group of people in history who were living on borrowed time, who were way past due to uh, see the end of things, that is the kingdom of Judah in the 600s or so uh, B.C. 
king after king, bad kings, some good kings, a big mess, things are happening, nations rise, nation falls, but the signs keep increasing and increasing, more and more clear, more and more intense, that your time is way, way overdue. And then we, we meet, uh, last week we met Hezekiah, who was a really great king because he trusted in God. But the author drops these hints in First and Second Kings that the end is still coming. And in chapter 17, two weeks back, we saw the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. And, and in Kings 17, it goes through this big list of all their problems. And they were, they were great problems. <laughs> they were terrible things, just really profoundly wicked things that, that they were doing. And then in the, in the middle of that whole passage that's all about the northern kingdom of Israel and all the things that they did wrong and why they are being taken over by Assyria... It just throws in this little comment about the southern kingdom of Judah in, in verse 19 of that chapter. And it says, By the way, Judah also did not keep the commandments of their Lord, and they walked in all the customs that Israel had introduced. In other words, uh, Judah is doing all these same terrible things that Israel was just destroyed for. So if you're reading through First and Second Kings, uh, there's all these markers that say, Aha, <laughs> something is going down. The end is looming. It's, in, it's imminent. It's on its way. So this morning, we're going to look at what happened to Hezekiah in his latter years, and we'll be introduced to three more kings, Manasseh, Ammon, and then Josiah, who was kind of the last shining light of uh, the kingdom of Judah. We'll, we'll, in the midst of this, we'll look at three lessons from Josiah's life that, um, that really teach us how to make the most of these last days. So we'll be in 2 Kings chapters uh, 20 to 23, mostly in uh, 22 and 23. And I believe that starts on page 327 in those pew Bibles uh, in the chairs in front of you. So first guy I introduced you is uh, Hezekiah. King Hezekiah, he was famous for a lot of things. He did a lot of great things. Include He's probably the one who orchestrated building well, they call it Hezekiah's Tunnel, so that's what makes me think it's probably built by him. But anyway, um, it's this tunnel from outside the walled city where there's a spring to take water inside, um, inside the walls of, of Jerusalem. And this was to protect their, their water source from, from siege and, uh, and from, to protect it from being used by um, their besiegers. And uh, I got to walk through the tunnel, and it's about... Most of the time, it's, it's about this wide, and it's about this tall, uh, sometimes this tall, but, and, you know, it's pitch black, and when, when there's been a lot of water, it could get up to about waist high, but when I went through, it was, it was maybe six inches deep, and uh, I, some of you have been through it, too. Shelby, you've gone through the tunnel. I was thinking Callie's been through the tunnel, and uh, anybody else been through the tunnel you've been through? Yeah, it's a little eerie, huh? But really fun. So anyway, it's just an impressive thing Hezekiah uh, did. But here is the, the rest of the story. Hezekiah, he gets a new lease on life. Chapter 20, verse 1 starts like that, this. In those days, Hezekiah became sick, and he was at the point of death. And when that happened, the prophet Isaiah came to him, and, and he told him, yeah, you're going to die. And Hezekiah cried out to God, which was his habit of doing, and God gave a new message to Isaiah. We see in verses 5 and 6, 
God says, behold, I will, heal, I will heal you, and I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you and the city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend the city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So he's on his deathbed. It was pronounced that he would die. And then the Lord said, after he cried out to the Lord, he said, no, I'm going to give you 15 more years of life, and I'm going to preserve this city. And so Hezekiah got this new... Uh, lease on life. It's like, he was, that was going to be the end, but then he gets these 15 years. And what if God told you exactly how many years you would have? Just kind of, I think there's real good reasons he doesn't typically tell us that. Um, and so in case any of you were thinking this is not a Christmas message, Isaiah says to, um, in Hezekiah's presence, bring me some figgy pudding. And uh, they take this figgy paste and they spread it on the boil or the tumor and, uh, and the Lord healed Hezekiah. So Merry Christmas to, to all of you and to, to Hezekiah. So Hezekiah, he's living on, um, no, really read it there. It's there, figgy pudding. Hezekiah is living on this borrowed time. And so what does he do? Does he redeem the time? Does he get real serious? Does he get real careful? Well, well not really. Verse 12 says this. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, the king of Babylon, that all just kind of rolls off the tongue, he sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. So Babylon, the king of Babylon, sends a get well present to Hezekiah. For Hezekiah, that seemed like a really great thing. You're like, oh, that was really nice of them. Um, Up to this point, we have heard basically nothing about Babylon. The big world power was Assyria, and before then they had problems with Egypt and with Syria or Aram and with Edom and Moab, but uh, Babylon was just way over there uh, under Assyria's thumb, and uh, they send these emissaries, uh, etc. The king wouldn't have thought too much about it. But for the exiles in Babylon who were probably their first recipients of, the letter, of these books, the First and Second Kings, they are, you know, their hair stands up on the back of their neck when they hear uh, Babylon. They're like, no, no, Babylon's coming to visit the king. This is terrible. In verse 13, here's what Hezekiah does. Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure house. He showed him the silver, he showed him the gold, and the spices, and the precious oil. He showed him his armory. And all that was found in his storehouses, there was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Hezekiah was careless with his borrowed time, and Hezekiah was clueless. And uh, as I was reading this, I was thinking through, you know, any scary movie you see where somebody's going into this situation, like, uh, what was that, you know, that mysterious sound? Well, let's split up in the dark warehouse and go try to find it. And you're watching the movie, you're like, no, that's a really terrible idea. Um, this past week, I'm going to confess that, that uh, we watched Jaws because when it first came out, I was too young to, to see it. Um, and it's kind of freaky if you're swimming in the ocean a lot, but it's also a giant mechanical uh, shark. But, um, but, you see people jumping in the water and splashing around, and you're like, haven't you seen the cover? Don't, don't go in there. Don't do it. So I picture the exiles reading this letter. is like, are you seriously showing Babylon all of your armory and all of your treasures? And this is just crazy. 
So Isaiah prophesies and basically says that was a really bad idea. Verse 16 He says to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and which your fathers have stored up till this day, they'll be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Judgment was clearly announced, and now it's specifically said, um, and it's going to be Babylon by who it will come. So Hezekiah came to the end of his days, and his son Manasseh becomes king. And here's what Manasseh gets as we follow the royal line. Manasseh gets the evil award. We don't hear a whole lot about him except the terrible things he's done. And chapter 21 starts out like this. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. It's a really great idea to give a 12-year-old, you know, monarch power. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And so here we have, you know, a long reign that was just terrible. It was terrible for the people, terrible for, their, for their, their faith in God. It was terrible politically. It was just terrible all around. Verses 3 to 9, it lists some of the evil things that Manasseh did. And the thing is, it's the very same list That was the reason that Israel, the northern kingdom, just got wiped out for. So anyone reading this is like, oh, I see. They did this and this happened. Now they're doing the exact same thing. And uh, it's these terrible things. They worship the host of heaven, witchcraft, idolatry, the sex and religion cult, child sacrifices. It's just, just horrible, horrible things. So the author of Kings is making it real clear that the end is coming for Judah. And then there's this clear pronouncement in verses 12 and, uh, and also 15. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such a disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. It'll be like, ah, oh, this is just so outrageous. 15. Because they have done what's evil in my sight, they provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. It's like generation after generation It's just gone on and gone on, and they are way overdue. Well, Manasseh finally dies, and everybody is not grieving. But his son becomes king, and Ammon, he gets as bad as dad. Uh, Verses 20 and 21 says, He, Ammon, did what was evil, in the sight of the Lord, just like Manasseh his father had done. And he walked in all the way in which his father walked, and he served the idols that his father served, and he worshiped them, just carrying more of the same. He's a chip off the old evil block. The rotten apple fell real close to the rotten tree. And he lasted only a couple years, thankfully. And, uh, but then his, what happened to him is this, uh, verse 24, the people of the land... Oh, sorry, backing up, first what happened is his servants assassinated him. They killed him because he was just so rotten. But then it leaves this question, yes, he he deserved to die for the wickedness he did, um, but what happens to David's line? That was going to be the line of the Messiah that God promised would, you know, he would be the only heir on that throne. Um, And now he's been assassinated by his servants. But... The people uh, who assassinated him were then killed by the rest of the people in the city. And it says in verse 24, The people of the land, they struck down those who conspired against the king 
And the people of the land, they made Josiah, his son, king in his place. And so the royal line of David uh, continues. The nation was falling apart. Judgment was imminent. The times were evil. And it was into this scene that Josiah was born. He got to be born in, you might say, the last days. And I think in a sense, um, it's your lot and mine also to be born in these last days. What will Josiah do with the precious borrowed time? What kind of king will he be? Will he be careless like Hezekiah? Will he be evil like Manasseh and Ammon? Uh, Thankfully, no. And here we begin chapter 22. I hear the pages flying. I know we're covering a lot of ground here. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. Okay, so I made a comment about giving a 12-year-old this monarch power, so we'll try an eight-year-old now. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. In verse 2, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Just, yay, I know, we should should cheer. That's what we should have been doing through this whole book. And he walked in the way of David, his father, and he did not turn aside from the right or to the left. He just very carefully followed all that God wanted him to do. We might say that Josiah, he gets serious about the Lord. That was not his family of origin. That was not his history. That's not what was role modeled for him. But he gets serious about the Lord. And when I say serious, I don't mean he got grumpy or he got uh, sad. But I think seriousness is when you is simply when you properly judge the profoundness of what is true. And so you you perceive how things really are, and you respond in your heart um, fully acknowledging the way things are. So, for instance, if you seriously, seriously grasp how much Christ loves you and how much he, um, he's done to save you, then you'll be seriously... Uh, enthusiastic. (laughs) You'll be seriously delighted. You'll do a serious uh, backflip maybe or celebrate or cheer and glory in what Christ has done. So when I say serious, I'm not equating that with with a solemn mope around, but just a grasping the profoundness of what is real. And so our theme today is the joy of, of the coming Savior. And so we should have this profound, serious joy, not a conjured up you know, cheerfulness or, or a, a petty surface happiness or anything like that, but a, a deeply rooted, serious joy in the Lord. So, in the, time, the rest of the time we have together, I'd like to show you three things from Josiah's life that are big lessons for us in how we can get serious about the Lord as well. And the first way is to get serious about the Lord's work. In verses 3 to verse 7, we see that in the 18th year of his reign, so he would have been uh, 26, just a little older than Carlos, um, his first major initiative was to repair the Lord's house, to to fix the temple that had been, the Lord's work had been totally neglected for a long time. Um, 55 years under Manasseh, two years under Ammon, just decades have gone by, and it was totally neglected. And we see in First and Second Kings, as we trace uh, the, the nation, that the temple is kind of a thermometer of what's happening with the people. When the temple is, 
is doing well and it's taken care of and it's thriving and the people are spiritually thriving and the nation is thriving. And, and the reverse of that is certainly true as well. Uh, this past summer, our family got to go to uh, the UK, which was just super fascinating. We visited uh, Phoebe, spent some time with her. She's been over there for over a year now. And, uh, but something is kind of a, a sad phenomenon in that part of the world is that uh, the church is declining. And so all these really historic churches, church buildings that might be you know, well over 100 years old are being turned into um, you know, apartment complexes, uh, luxury homes. And often, here's, here's one of many that was turned into um, a pub. It's a bar in London. There's nightclubs. And from the outside, they look like, like an old church, you know, with big Gothic-style uh, windows and all that. And you go inside, and it's a, it's a nightclub. And it's happening uh, all over um, England. And uh, so this was a little bit like what was happening with the temple. It'd just been neglected. It'd be turned into other things, except it went a step further. And instead of not just a nightclub, it was turned into just a, a pagan uh, place of worship. And really terrible things were happening there. And so Hezekiah, I mean, uh, Josiah's first big thing to do is, we got to fix this place up. we got to take care of the Lord's work. we got to take care of the Lord's house. So when you're living on borrowed time, don't neglect the Lord's work. I love the verse in Hebrews 10, or these verses 24 and 25, that says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. We are closer to the day <laughs> Than ever. And as it approaches, we need to not neglect ministry. The the investing in other people's lives, you know, stirring up others to, to love and to do good, encouraging one another. Faithfully just involved in, in church, you know, not neglecting to meet together, as this passage says. Don't don't, don't neglect serving. Everybody in God's family is designed to, to serve. Don't neglect giving to the Lord's work and taking care of the place of worship. Sometimes you drive through a town and you see a church and you just think, I think they expected Jesus to come back in 1955 and they they decided that they weren't going to paint their building um, because he was going to come back any minute. But now, you know, 70 years have passed and he still hasn't come back. I, I didn't do that math, but I'm just saying a long time has passed. And uh, he hasn't come back, and it looks the same as it did. They just have neglected to take care of, uh, of the place of worship. And uh, that had happened um, in, in the time of the kings here. Don't stop sharing your faith. Ministering to other people is just sharing what God's done in your life and telling them how they can come into a relationship with God. Don't, don't think, well, everyone who's going to be saved is probably saved. It's simply not true because God would have come back. But the reason he hasn't is because he's patient and he's not wanting those to perish. So some think, what's the use of striving? Jesus is coming soon. I'll just kind of check out. I'll just disengage. I'll just coast. And this is actually exactly what was happening in the New Testament times. This has always been a problem. Uh, Some in the Thessalonian church, they're like, oh, the Lord's going to return, so I'm just going to stop working. 
and just kind of mooch. And Paul says um, in uh, chapter 3, verse 10 and following, he says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. It's like there's so much more good to be done. There's so much uh, ministry to do. There's so many people to reach. Don't just check out and say, well, you know, looks like there's nothing else to do. The world's falling apart and I'm just going to go hide in a hole. No, the Lord has things for us to do. So what, back to the narrative, what happened when they restored the temple? Really fascinating. This place had been, been neglected for years and years and years, and they go to do a renovation on it, and lo and behold, they, what they find in here is fascinating. Verse 8, Hilkiah, the high priest, he said to Shaphan, the secretary, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. What do you know? They found the Bible in the church, and it had been totally lost. You know, there weren't, nobody, you know, just had copies. They didn't have it on their phones. You know, they didn't have printing presses where everybody had a copy in different versions. They didn't have it all stuffed in the chairs. And so it's just been lost. And they find the Bible, basically, you know, probably the Torah, the, the Pentateuch in the, in the temple, and uh, he reads it, and then they take it, and they give it to uh, Josiah, and they read it in his presence. I'm not sure exactly how long it takes just to read the first five books of the Bible, but this wasn't just a casual thing. You know, it takes, it takes a while. It probably, well, I think it would take all day. And how he responds is he just gets really serious about the Lord's word, about Scripture, about the Torah. And he goes through this process that I think that we can totally replicate um, in our own lives in, in a bunch of different ways, but let's just see how, how he does it here. Um, he starts out, verse 10, uh, Shaphan read it before the king. So first, um, he, he read it. Or he exposed it or he heard it. He listened to it at least. He heard the whole Bible or the whole Torah through and learned what was in it. And when he heard what was in it, he realized, this is terrible. I have not been uh, following the covenant that God has made with us. And, and he repented. He, he felt sorrow, and he, he changed his mind about, about these things. He grieved over not following the Lord's command. In verse 11, it says, when the king heard the words that were in the book of the law, he tore his clothes. He just was just in grief, like, oh, I can't believe it. I didn't know these things. I didn't know I was supposed to be doing this and, I, and not doing that, etc. And he, he just repented over it. Well, well then, the uh, next thing he did was he, he prayed about it. He talked to God about what he had read. Verse 13, he says, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. In other words, we need, we need to seek God and talk to him about what he's written to us. And that, we can do the very same thing when we come to God's word. We read what's there. Then it's not just like a novel or something. It's a letter from God to us. And so in prayer, we discuss it with him.
Okay, number four is he went to get some help to figure this out. What should we do with this? What's the message here for me? Um, see, he sought help to understand God's message. And verse 14 says that the high priest and some other guys went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, the son of Harhas, the keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lives in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. You just get the feeling that this person was so obscure. It's like, is there anyone who could, you know, enlighten us about God's message for us? Well, I think the grandson, or maybe the great-grandson of the guy who kept the wardrobe, he uh, married this girl, and I think she could help us. And so they go to Hulda, and uh, sure enough, she, uh, she had a message from the Lord, and she says, yeah, disaster's coming, but because of your repentant heart, um, it's going to be held off for a while. And that was, uh, that was Hulda's message. And I'm surprised that more of us don't name our daughters Hulda, because I think that's a cool story right there. And so then next he, he shares it, uh, he encourages others, he brings everybody else into this. Uh, verse um, 2 of the next chapter, 23, says, And the king went up to the house of the Lord, you know, back to the temple, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both the small and the great. I, I think that's probably like status, not just size. But. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. So he brings everybody together and he just, he just reads the whole Torah to them. Because you guys have got to hear this. <laughs> then finally and it always has to go to here, is he just simply obeyed it. <laughs> it's like, let's just do what it says. Verse 3 of chapter 23, the king stood by the pillar and he made this covenant before the Lord, the covenant to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul and to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book. And all the people, they joined in the covenant also. So he made this solemn pact, this solemn vow to, I'm just going to do everything that's in this book. If it's, if it's hard, if it's mysterious, if it's confusing, I'm just going to do my best possible to do what God has said in his covenant. And so the whole next big section of this chapter from verses 4 to maybe about verse 20 talks about the way that he just meticulously rooted out all the wickedness that he found in, in the kingdom. And things that were just, you know, evil going on, he'd just get rid of them, and he just went through and cleaned house. And I think that's what we need to do when we come to God's word, and we're like, ooh, I, I'm confronted that there's some wickedness in this corner of my heart. I need to just get rid of that. I need to just stop doing that. I need to stop thinking that. I need to stop saying that and just get, get rid of it. Uh, James in the New Testament, he talks about God's word like a mirror. And we go and we see, oh, I got this, you know, splotch on here. And it'd be foolish just to walk away, like, oh, that's interesting, and then walk away with the big splotch. But instead, it's like, no, take that, clean it off. Do what God says in his word. So this is a pattern we could all follow. And I just want to walk you through maybe just one of many, many ways that this might uh, pan out. For instance, you're reading somewhere in the Bible, and let's say this time it's uh, Colossians 3.8, uh, which I'll put up here for you. It says, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, 
malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And you're, you're thinking about that. You've already done the first thing, which is to read it. And you think of slander like, huh, I hadn't really thought about just, you know, saying insulting things about people, how God really has a problem with that. And I, I think sometimes I do that. And sometimes I do that with, with my friends. And, uh, and you repent of that. So let's just go through the process. You say, I'm so sorry. I've been guilty of slander. I've been bad-mouthing. I've said hurtful words against someone's reputation, maybe insults. Maybe I've, I've posted things online or whatever it is you've, you've slandered. And so then you talk to God about it. You pray, say, uh, God, please teach me not to slander. Help me say words of life and hope. I really, just forgive me for, for, uh, for speaking poorly of people that you've created. And then you, you go, you might need to get help to really understand it and figure out what to do with this. And maybe seek some godly counsel and say, you know, uh, is it wrong to slander if I put it like in a prayer request somehow? And, or, or what if I've already slandered? You know, what should I do about that? And somebody could you know, help you walk, walk through that. You know, get, get help like they went and found Holda for help. And then you share it uh, with your friends. You might get together with your friends and say, I was reading um, in uh, Colossians 3, and I was really kind of convicted that sometimes when we get together, we tend to slander. You know, we tend to talk about people in, in ways that we shouldn't. And let's just help each other not do that. And so now you've, you've, you've shared it with those around you. And then finally, you just obey it. You do whatever you can to root out that slander that's, that's in your life. Um, you might have to go back and delete some uh, Facebook posts. Or you might need to go ask forgiveness from somebody. You might need to put duct tape over your mouth. Whatever it is that will help you root out that, that thing to take seriously what God says in his word. So this is just one example, obviously, of, of uh, tons of things that, that God speaks about and how you can go through that same process of you read it, if your life doesn't match up, you repent of it, you talk to God about it, you get some help with it, you share it with others, and you just simply obey it. Uh, Josiah walks us through that, and it's, I think it's a, it's a model for us. Okay, here's his last thing that we hear about Josiah, his big accomplishment, um, in verse 21. Final thing is, and the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. And so our final lesson from Josiah is to get serious about the Lord's worship. God ordained ways to worship, but... um, but the Passover was neglected for a really long time. Not just during the wicked kings, but during the whole period of the kings and into the time of the judges. Verses 22 to 23, uh, chapter 23, says, No such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges. We're talking about hundreds of years here. Or during the days of all the kings of Israel or all the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year, of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. And it's like a spiritual revival of worshiping God as he as he's asked to be worshipped, as as he prescribes certain ways to be worshipped. And um, in the New Testament, we have lots of talk about what uh, it looks like to worship God. He's given us a lot of information about that. 
Jesus himself said, worship in spirit and in truth. And I think in simple terms, we might just say, yeah, we worship God with our, with our heart and our head, you know, uh, with our whole being. Romans 12, let your whole life be worshiped. Just the way you live, may it be worship. Philippians 3.3, 3, worship by glorifying Christ. That's what worship is. It's just making a big deal about who Jesus is. Hebrews 12.28, worship with reverence and awe of coming before God and just realizing, wow, he's here and I'm here. And that's how it should be. And he is amazing and great. Ephesians 5, worship with psalms and hymns and with spiritual songs. Let, let it be an outpouring into, into singing. That's why we have music in our services. When we live on borrowed time, our lives should be full of worship, of just adoring who God is. I think of somebody who, um, for instance, they have their kidney that's failing, and somebody uh, in their family or a friend uh, gives them a kidney so that, so that they could live. And I just imagine if one of my friends gave me their kidney so I could live, that I would be just celebrating that guy all the time, saying, hey, you guys got to meet my friend here. He gave me his kidney. Can you believe it? And uh, just making a big deal about him. And that's, that's what we should do about Christ. He has saved us. In, in, this, in this last hour, when things are tanking, so to speak, uh, he gave his life so that we might have life. And so we should just celebrate him. Or a or a firefighter that rushed into a building and saved you and pulled you out, well, you'd go down and bake cookies for all the firefighters. I mean, it would just be overwhelmed with gratitude. That's what Jesus has done for us, is he's rescued us. Each day you're alive is a gift from God. So we worship him, and all the more as we see the day approaching. So we don't grumble. We don't despair. We don't just check out and coast. We don't compromise. We don't act entitled. But instead, we live with this attitude of wonder over the wonderfulness of God. When you live on a borrowed time, you get serious about the Lord's worship, about the Lord's work, you know, about ministry, about the Lord's word, the Bible, and about the Lord's worship, just adoring him. When the world's a mess and we're tempted to stop caring, that's when it's the most important to care and to be careful. Last verse, Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 16 says, look really carefully how you walk or you know, how, you, how you live your life. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the very best use of the time because these days are evil. Literally, a more you know, rigidly literal translation is of making the best use of your time is redeeming the time. It's like you've been given a, a certain number of minutes and you exchanged each of those in. You know, if you have coupons that, are, that uh, you don't use, they expire, it's just such a waste. Well, God's given you all the moments of your life. You could waste them or you could, you could use them. You could redeem them redeem the time because the days are evil making the most of every opportunity so in short just our final challenge is just redeem your borrowed time you know god's given it to you each day is precious each moment's a a a coupon from the lord to to spend for him 
and uh, don't just uh, squander those. We have a great, great God who has gloriously come into time and space, which we celebrate at Christmas, and he came to show us perfection. He came to point us to the Father and uh, offer us real, real life in him. If we'd only just believe in him, if we'd only place our confidence in him, the perfect king of kings, the perfect master of all masters, our, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is plenty of reason for me to give joy <laughs> all the time. And that's what we celebrate now. The team would come back up as we sing our closing song. Uh, let me pray for us.